Planetano Gitag is part of Norway's Climate Festival, Klimafestivalen 112, Bergen Chapter, and is endorsed by the Norwegian Climate Foundation, Norske Klimastiftelse, and Juridica Insect. The first two episodes are released as part of pre-festival events, while the third episode will be aired to mark the beginning of the Climate Festival in June 2021. Welcome to Climate Energy Talk, a series of three podcasts powered by the Center on Climate and Energy Transformation at the University of Bergen, Norway. My name is Esmeralda Colombo. I'm a lawyer and research fellow at the Center, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this journey. The theme of this series has risen forcefully during these pandemic times and is quite simple. How can science help us in the climate crisis? Can it depolarize and democratize the debate on climate change and boost green innovation? As you see from the title Climate Energy Talk, in this series we'll drill down on the paradox of energy policy. It is the sector most contributing to climate change, but the one where we find the least consensus. Should we keep fossil fuel extraction? Should we divest? Should we bet on the electrification of our cities? In the first podcast, we talked about epistemic communities and found out how social and natural scientists are working together across sectors to support policymaking, often to better up national and global climate politics in more or less visible ways. In today's podcast, we're joined by Another two excellent speakers, Professor Mads Gricker and Professor Knut Einar Rosendahl. Welcome, Mads and Knut Einar. Thanks so much for being here. Both Mads and Knut Einar hold a PhD in economics and are based in Norway. They have devoted their work to environmental and resource economics, climate policy, and technology. They published in prestigious reviews and have been awarded several prizes. This podcast is The Climate Casino, drilling down on the Norwegian climate change case. So let me shortly explain the story of this invitation. Mats and Knut Einer have been expert witnesses in the one and only climate change case filed in Norway. People versus Arctic oil, eventually decided in 2020 by the Norwegian Supreme Court. This major lawsuit challenged the expansion of Norway's petroleum industry to the southern and southeastern areas of the Bering Sea, an expansion that was supported unanimously by the Norwegian parliament on June 10, 2016, 10 days before Norway ratified the Paris Agreement. It is worth noting that the lawsuit was directed against the petroleum licenses issued by the government the Norwegian government, not against the parliament's decision to open these new areas. So, Matt and Knut Einer carried out a review of the profitability analysis made by state authorities to open new areas for drilling in the Barents Sea. Thanks to the media, media outlets, and then court decisions, I was aware of their contribution, a scientific contribution from a purely economic perspective, to understanding whether more oil and gas, especially in the southeast Barents Sea, 
can be profitable in 10 years from now when production would start. Here's my questions to you. So first, about your involvement in the case. How were you involved in the case? Then uh, about your collaboration with lawyers in the case. Would you call the collaboration you had with the parties to the case an epistemic community, as we called it in the first podcast, namely a community of knowledge with lawyers? And thirdly, about the Supreme Court and your experience with it, did you come in contact with Supreme Court justices and how was it? Was it a written or oral interaction in each stage of the proceedings? So first, thank you for inviting us to this podcast. Uh, it's very interesting to be here. Uh, so we were approached by uh, Greenpeace and their lawyers. I think it was late 2016 or early 2017 when they were preparing uh, their lawsuit, uh, as you mentioned. And they wanted someone, some economists, to look more into this uh, assessment report that the government made before opening this area. Uh, so both looking at the economic analysis that were made and see if we thought they looked sensible or not. And also to what degree they had taken into account the cost of CO2 emissions uh, in the analysis, both uh, CO2 emissions in Norway, but also CO2 emissions abroad. Because that's uh, these are things that uh, Mats and I have been working on before. So I guess that's why they were approaching us and asked us. So we agreed to do a small project on this uh, and started to look into the report and found some interesting and in a way disturbing things. Yeah, maybe I could follow up on the cooperation between the, the lawyers that were involved in the case. I think that was, as Knut Einar has now described the history, how we came into the case. And we started to read this assessment report and got some additional material. And we started to discuss the things that we found that we didn't agree with in the assessment report. And uh, then I think the discussion with the lawyers were uh, very good, the discussions that we had. And... Um, and uh, in the collaboration, we also, you can say that uh, through our, uh, yeah, through our collaboration, we also did some other in investigations on the tax system, because Norway has a special tax system uh, for the petroleum sector, uh, and uh, so we also did something more, and that was inspired by the discussions that we had with the lawyers. We we uh, we we sort we sort of compared the private profitability of this uh, exploration in the Southeast Barents Sea with the profitability from the point of view of the society, because the tax system could distort this too, so that you could have it privately profitable, but not socially profitable due to the tax system. And that was not covered in the assessment report, and that was something that came out of the collaboration that we also added that to our report. And I think that was very interesting. Super interesting. So you asked about uh, also this, uh, if we were in contact with the Supreme Court justices. So uh, in the Supreme Court, we only delivered written uh, statements. Uh, so we weren't in contact with the Supreme Court. Uh, but in the two previous uh, uh, courts, so the city court and this uh, Lagmannsretten, there we uh, were we gave oral presentations of our report. Um, 
and they had the possibility to ask us questions, but they didn't ask much questions. Uh, a few questions in the city court, uh, but not in Lagmansretten. And also the defense of the state uh, didn't ask any questions to us. So uh, I found that a bit strange that the defense uh, of the state, or what you can call it, uh, the, uh, the lawyer of the state, the government lawyer, uh, we had found a lot of interesting things, but uh, I don't know why. But it was you could ex you could uh, suspect it to be some kind of strategy that they didn't want to go into this economics at all, didn't want to ask any questions, just wanted to ignore totally the economic arguments. In the in the first uh, level courts, it was as if this was just boring and didn't want to hear it. It was irrelevant, etc. So. Uh, I found that uh, acting a bit strange. If you're really interested in enlightening a case, why do you take this stance? Definitely. So you didn't get any questions uh, also at the third instance by the Supreme Court, not even a written question about your report. No, nothing. I'm not sure. I don't know what's common in the Supreme Court, but uh, we didn't get any questions. So as a lawyer, I found your review very comprehensible. I was impressed by the fact that I could understand it. So I thought, of course, the justices are going to understand it. But it was also important just to point out how future decisions by the government can be made, uh, right? Because it's uh, one of the few analysis that I've seen on the profitability of the petroleum sector and the only one on this specific case and the only one taking also into account public law, you know, the tax system you mentioned, Matt, it was interesting for lawyers to understand how to even revamp the tax system. So also from a purely scientific viewpoint, I think that it was one uh, of a kind review. So even for lawyers working within and outside state institutions, I think this report will be a landmark for the future. Is it the first time a report like this has been written and tied to a case? Did you feel like you were pioneers? Could you have any um, example of how to do that? Or did you really come up with uh, uh, the method on how to do that while talking with the lawyers for this case? I'm not sure what's, uh, if, if this has been done before. Of course, this is the first uh, case of this uh, type, as far as I know. So, so maybe it's also done the first time uh, having this report. There are, of course, other economic reports used in court cases, uh, also with regard to, to energy, etc. But I don't have a full overview of this. I, I think in Norway, we have uh, very much trust in the reports that the government make. That we uh, there has been of course other assessment report uh, on other opening of fields. So uh, I think we have a general trust that they are that they follow approved methods and that they are balanced and that they 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 are in spirit uh, where you you want to seek knowledge. Uh, you want to see uh, this, you you really want to have a decision material a material that you can make a decision from but I, but i was very surprised when i read this assessment report on the southeastern barren sea that it's uh, 
it was not a neutral in my opinion in my opinion it was not a neutral report it was a report geared towards a specific decision that you wanted to open this area and that all other that information that wasn't positive for this uh, opening up that was just removed from the report yeah i agree it was uh, a tendency of always uh, overestimating the benefits and underestimating uh, the costs uh, in many of the the errors and uh, yeah, the things that we discovered so that was a bit depressing i would say yes on this point accounting errors by the norwegian government were partly recognized up to the norwegian supreme court for many the Supreme Court's decision, as we said, has been quite disappointing as it did not fully consider the state's errors, which were not just of one, but of three types. So I will uh, just, uh, I would like to talk with you about these errors. First type of error, the net value of future profits was presented in today's value. In one sentence, profits were not discounted. Would you like to comment on this and briefly explain to our listeners what this lack of discounting entails? Yeah, this is a very basic error, I would say. So, uh, uh, in short words, uh, uh, money today is more, more worth than money in the future. So, if you can choose between 1 million today and 1 million in 2030, even if it's certain that you get it in 2030, you would always choose to have it today. Because if you have it today, you can invest it somewhere and you will earn more money and in 2030 you will have more than 1 million. So that's uh, why it's very important when you compare income and cost in different years uh, that you discount uh, the future cost and income uh, when you compare it uh, with uh, cost and income today. And that's what the government didn't do. They took 1 million uh, cost today compared it with 1 million income in 2030 and thought this was uh, the same value but that's uh, not how it is not only in 2030 because actually this production uh, should go on until 2050 as well and they also said that 1 million in 2050 is the same as having 1 million today so that's really uh, that's that's just wrong hmm because you can invest this money and it will be more in 2050. It's not a pedagogical way, as someone has argued, to present numbers. It's a wrong way to present numbers, hmm. as simple as that. So then it's always uh, the way to do it is to produce something called the net present value, where you uh, take income and cost in different years and you uh, discount future cost and future income. Uh, and then you can compare it and you get uh, what is the correct valuation of this uh, of any project any economic project this is this is very very standard in economics so it's a, a clear mistake by the government not to do it this was um, a definition you know this pedagogics about the numbers by the supreme court we read it in the decision and uh, you know why do you think uh, it was just uh, a matter of pedagogics? I think uh, yeah, all the uh, members of parliament and uh, are used to 
discounted numbers. That's sort of the that's the in all cost benefit analysis you should uh, apply discounted numbers. So in the manual for cost benefit analysis, which uh, which uh, uh, the Parliament has been presented for a number of cost-benefit analysis up, uh, up over the years. It's always discounted values. That's the, the way you should do it. The discussion is about, of course, which interest rate should you use? Should you use 4%, 3% or higher, 7%? And of course, the higher the interest rate, the less will the money in the future will uh, be worth. But you should always have a positive interest rate. And so I think this is uh, this is something that they're used to. So I think it's presenting it without discounting. It's not a pedagogic way. It's uh, it's just a way of uh, getting the project to look more profitable than it really is. So because all oil projects involve a lot of investments in the beginning and then the income come later. And then if you have discounting, then the, as you should have, then then you see the real profitability of the project but then if you have problems with the profitability and you really want to get this project to then you could uh, skip the discounting and the project will look more profitable and uh, but that's not a pedagogic way of presenting it that's just uh, how uh, someone that would like to fool some others into saying yes to something would present it so in the white paper, it says uh, quite early when they are giving a summary of the assessment report, it says that uh, the net value of this uh, uh, this activity will be either 280 billion uh, kroner in one scenario or 50 billion in another scenario. And then when, as a reader, you expect this to be the net value uh, in from the calculations. But then it turns out that uh, that's not the case. So when we do this net present value calculation, which is the correct way to do it, the numbers are reduced by more than uh, one half, more than 50%, only by this uh, making this discounting. So this was an exaggeration of the of the results that came out uh, of the of the calculations. And it was also not possible from the numbers presented to do to calculate net present value at all because they didn't uh, they didn't show all the numbers behind this uh, uh, result. So it was uh, it was simply not possible to do the calculation. So we were only able to do it when we got the material uh, lying behind the numbers, which we got directly from the petroleum directorate when we asked. Yes, indeed, it's very surprising. Uh, because uh, it was not possible to fully understand whether the numbers were discounted or not. And as you said, the practice is to have discounted numbers. So the um, reaction by the Supreme Court was quite uh, peculiar. It said because the state decided to own three licenses in the area of the Barents Sea under attack, uh, under critique, the Norwegian Supreme Court believed that the ministry had evaluated the activity as profitable with discounted numbers. And this is in paragraph 205 of the judgment. So is this assumption sound in a way that to say, well, you, you wanted the licenses, so you must have done a good deal. Would any of you like to comment on this point? I think I would like to comment one thing, and that is, the question is not only whether it's profitable or not, whether it's just about zero so that you could have these licenses. Uh, because with such a product, there are other costs as well that are not 
taken into account by private investors like environment local environmental costs like uh, the risk of an oil spill and this uh, and the damages that will follow from that so and these damages these potential damages they should be weighted against the profitability and the parliament should be able to do that that's the point of the whole uh, impact assessment that you do before you opening up a field that you weight these costs and benefits against this other so then maybe the parliament would have liked to see that this project was really profitable it was not just profitable but it was very profitable so that it could uh, you could still argue that this this uh, high profitability is so high so that we are willing to accept this cost but now the parliament wasn't able to do any of this evaluations because they were never presented for the real profitability of the project so uh, they couldn't do this waiting at all. And that was uh, a serious error. Right. So let's get to the second error, the lack of a carbon price on emissions. Because the method to calculate a carbon price is uncertain, the Norwegian Supreme Court could not say how a carbon price should have been considered in the environmental impact assessment to open the area. This is in paragraph 204 of the judgment. The court quoted Knotainer's report, and I was just wondering, is this assumption, namely uncertainty, that there are many methods to calculate a carbon price, so we don't really do that, we don't calculate it, is it sound from your perspective, from an economic perspective? So um, it's uh, no doubt that there are costs from CO2 emissions in Norway, uh, and these costs were not uh, included at all. So in a way, they put the price to zero, and that's clearly wrong to put the price of CO2 emissions in Norway to zero. Um, but then it's uh, it's not uh, sure what price should be done uh, should be used. Um, um, kind of you can have different views about what's the right CO2 price, and you don't really know what the CO2 price will be in the future. But I mean, that's the same with the oil price. They don't didn't know what the oil price in the future would be, but still they use some oil prices in their calculations of the income from this uh, activity. They had uh, some alternative price scenarios, but they didn't know for sure what the oil price would be. But they, as I said, they did, they, they used it. So they could, they should have done a similar thing with the CO2 emissions, uh, calculated the CO2 emissions uh, from the activity uh, and used maybe used a different uh, alternative CO2 prices to show what the cost of these emissions would be. But now, in a way, they put the price to zero, which is clearly wrong. And there is no problem of finding uh, CO2 prices, various uh, estimations of future uh, or projections of future CO2 prices. For instance, uh, the IAA, the International Energy Agency, which the government likes to cite in a lot of other uh, things that they write, uh, they have projections for the future CO2 price if the world uh, should reach the two degree target as was agreed upon in the Paris as has been floating around for a long time the two degree target and they could just look at the IAA and then they could see projections for the CO2 price all for the whole horizon of this project and IPCC has projections of the same and uh, it's no problem of finding it and as Knut Einar said these numbers are uncertain but all the numbers in this uh, uh, that they used are also uncertain also the costs 
the costs that they use, the cost of uh, exploring and then investing in production equipment, etc. These are also that are also uncertain numbers in a new area. Right. So the third error concerns uh, the double accounting for some incomes, so not costs but incomes. The Supreme Court acknowledged that it was a matter of many billion Norwegian crowns that were counted twice but considered the issue unimportant in the overall numbers, in the big picture. And this is in paragraph 203 of the judgment. What, what is your understanding of this assumption from an economic perspective? That there may be accounting errors, but we can let them be because there are anyway so many billion Norwegian crowns. Does it, does it make you react that numbers are not that important from a legal viewpoint? I think it's difficult to know how how to how important these things are from a legal standpoint. But I think uh, uh, we have already talked about several errors. Uh, so this is one a third error uh, that we pointed to. Uh, together, there are so many errors in economic uh, calculations that uh, uh, at least I think it's strange that it didn't uh, matter much. But as I said, I'm not a legal. <laughs> Experts, so it's difficult to know how important that should be in a legal framework. I think this uh, arguing that numbers are uncertain and uh, numbers are not important for the decision, etc., is inconsistent with how the state acts, because the state pays a lot to uh, to, to get these numbers. There was a consultancy firm engaged uh, to uh, calculate the employment effects of these uh, projects. Of course, these employment effects are also really uncertain, but uh, the government paid this consultancy firm quite a lot to produce these numbers. So the government are interested in the numbers. If not, they wouldn't be paying for it. And uh, and then they say afterwards that these numbers are so uncertain, so we we don't uh, take them into. They are not important, but why then pay for them in the first place? So uh, I think that's inconsistent, and I think the court should uh, look at this kind of. In- I think it's a signal that uh, you actually pay attention to the numbers that you you want to pay to get the numbers. Yeah, I agree in the sense that climate matters are considered to be. Um, so deeply entrenched with economic matters that, of course, you need to look at the economics of it. So about these discussions up to uh, November, we thought these were uh, errors. But just a handful days ahead of adjudication before Norway's Supreme Court in November 2020, a scandal emerged what first seemed as sloppy and unrealistic projections, as we've said, made by the government, shown by your analysis, were found to be actually known by the government. Some officials in Norway's Ministry of Oil and Energy had allegedly silenced reports from Norway's Petroleum Directorate, showing the possibility of massive losses from Arctic expansion. Someone considered it a political cover-up unhelpful for the democratic role of the parliament, and a whistleblower spoke up. Then current ministers of oil and energy and many others have recently been heard now in February 2021 by the Control and Constitutional Committee of the parliament. So it got to be a big deal. And it actually started with your analysis. So this is quite uh, groundbreaking. 
The then minister argued that he did not know about the silencing and anyway, the numbers are uncertain, as we said, this uncertainty justification. So even little disclosure was enough disclosure of economic science and analysis to the parliament. But of course, um, this is one of the many objections of policymakers uh, that numbers are, are uncertain, and we talked about that. But uh, the previous minister of oil and energy talked about the existence of existence of a deviating culture within the Ministry of Oil and Energy, namely a wall of conformism by which exporting petroleum is good and just for Norway, and a lack of knowledge on the renewable energy industry, including technologies. What is your view on this? In this context, is it possible to build what we call epistemic communities with policymakers, namely communities to collaborate across sectors and on equal footing. Should scientists engage in a sort of science diplomacy, more communication avenues? Should academics leave the academia and maybe try to work for the Ministry of Oil and Energy to get the numbers right? Or is there a risk of a deviating culture, as the minister itself he, herself said? Uh, as I said before, that uh, there was a clear tendency uh, in the assessment report of uh, overstating the, the, the benefits side and understating the cost side may suggest that uh, there is something to what the ministry, the, the previous minister said, and uh, that there is some culture, uh, but it's difficult also to know exactly how deep it is and uh, or how extensive it is. But I think it was, was also um, a bit telling to, to read some of the emails from the Petroleum Directorate with some of the, the experts there, uh, not having a good feeling about this process. Uh, so sort of also uh, uh, suggesting a bit the same. Um, but in general, there are, uh, I think it's a good thing for academics to work uh, both with and within the ministries uh, to collaborate with them have meetings with them and discuss uh, different things and also switch jobs between academia and ministries. I think that's a good thing. And, and in general, it's a good thing also in Norway, I think in most ministries and most uh, divisions, uh, but it's difficult as an outsider to really know what's going on inside. I agree with Kundainer and, uh, and I will, would also like to add that there are many excellent economists working in the Ministry of Oil and Energy. I don't know whether they are actually where they work, but I know a lot of excellent economists working in this ministry. And that would, I think, uh, defend, uh, for instance, discounting of future uh, incomes uh, really hard. So. Um, but it's also a political side here. It was, I think, at the, at the point of time where this report was written, this assessment uh, report, you know, I'm only speculating, but that was just after we got the agreement with the, with Russia on the, on the sharing of the Barents Sea, this new, new split of the Barents Sea. And I think it was politically very important for the, the government at that time to get some results from this uh, successful negotiations with Russia and have some activity in these areas that was now declared Norwegian. 
So uh, it's as I said, I will I would like to repeat this on the speculation, but uh, I think there was also a political pressure to to this should look good. This should be a a new uh, future for the Finnmark region of Norway uh, with oil exploration in the South Barents Sea. Indeed, yeah. uh, geopolitics can uh, matter a lot when it comes to the way to go for. Uh, climate change policies and this is also um, how the name for this podcast uh, um, was inspired the climate casino that's a book by Norhaus whereby Norhaus meant that economic growth is producing unintended but perilous changes in the climate and earth systems we are rolling the climatic dice He said that we have just entered the climate casino, but there are recipes to turn it around in science, economics, and even politics. So how does the above show that economics uh, uh, can help uh, understand the way to go? Also because of these assumptions by judges, how can economics depolarize the debate, which is the topic for um, our podcast our series of podcasts. Do we need courses on basic climate change economics for judges and lawyers, maybe? Uh, it's difficult to know, but I, I think it's it's important for for judges to know at least uh, uh, basic economics uh, so that uh, they can understand the importance of discounting, for instance, uh, that uh, that uh, it's, not a, it's not a matter of pedagogical Uh, presentation, but that it's uh, it's a real error of not doing uh, discounting, for instance. So, so I I don't, I don't know how much economics uh, judges uh, can in general, but uh, at least it's important that they know these basic things and how and how important these basic things are. Of course, the judges can also seek advice. Uh, they hear the case, but they have a lot of time to, to think about the case after the court hearings. So I don't know whether it's um, whether it's institutionalized or uh, normal for judges to seek uh, economic advice in case there is something that they don't understand and, or they don't. I mean, do, do the Supreme Court have economists working, helping the judges to understand economics arguments, for instance, in the Supreme Court? These kind of things. They, yeah, that's that's something I just wonder about after this case. That's right. They could have asked for um, their own expert, court experts, um, to show the understanding behind your own analysis. So that's uh, possible, but still it's not practice. So it will be an interesting point to raise in future cases. So just briefly on democracy then. In her essay in uh, The New Yorker, um, philo philosopher Anna Arendt in 1967 distinguished between what she called factual truths and rational truths. We have talked about errors, we've talked about uh, uh, even uh, a political cover-up to the parliament. So I, I think the topic of factual truths and rational truths is important, not just in our post-truth society, but in general um, for democracy and specifically for this case. So for example, 
Arendt says that rational truths are more certain. They are scientific discoveries, mathematical axioms. They're not prone to be changed um, over time. But factual truths, uh, really what happens uh, in reality and how we interpret even data, this is apt to be changed and apt to, to be uh, influenced by political views. So in this case, for example, Arendt would respond that officers in the ministry, in the Norwegian ministry, might have been influenced by their own organizational culture. Most of us, in fact, tend to pick and choose the uh, factual truths, even the numbers that support our political views. Psychologists have shown the tendency that people have to conform their beliefs, um, including factual beliefs, to, to their values, deeper values defining their political identities. So I asked myself, how can scientists uh, change in a way this bias we have, breathe the life on factual truths and dispel the risk we all are prone to of politicizing what we know and politicizing what we read? I think this is a very difficult uh, question that you have here, Esmeralda. Uh, I was thinking a lot when I read, uh, when I was hearing the question, what is actually factual truth and what is rational truth in this specific case? And uh, that you should discount is in a way a rational uh, truth. Uh, that's sort of a theoretical uh, result. And, uh, and of course, if the interest rate is zero, discounting has no effect. But as long as the interest rate is uh, positive, then uh, there will be an effect of uh, discounting. Uh, but then uh, the factual truth is, is this project profitable, uh, even if you discount, for instance? Uh, or if it's profitable, should uh, Norway do it? Or should uh, Norway forego these profits uh, in, the, in, in, the, um, uh, in order to try to prevent climate change more? And that's sort of a, another discussion, I think, uh, which has no uh, rational answer, but you, but you can discuss pros and cons of, of Norway sort of foregoing profitable oil projects because they want to do something more uh, towards climate change. Uh, 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 and that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something that needs to be discussed, but if the project is not profitable, then it should not be carried out independent of climate change going on or not. So I think uh, another thing is uh, this, uh, there is so much uh, research going on and so many research results uh, entering uh, the media each day, etc. So it's, it's tempting to sort of cherry pick the results that fits uh, your, your belief, prior belief, etc. But when it comes to climate change, um, then the, the United Nations have, uh, have put together this uh, IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is uh, summarizing uh, the climate change science uh, regularly. And that's, I think, is a very good way of uh, trying to sort of uh, to summarize what is the main findings in this type of research um, that at least uh, avoids uh, policymakers from just uh, cherry-picking uh, results from the climate change science, although it is <laughs> in a way possible to do it there also. But that's at least one way of, uh, of uh, for scientists to, to, uh, yeah, to help in that respect. Right. So uh, 
here we are concluding today's podcast, the second podcast in the series Climate Energy Talk. But let me just add one more question. And this is because these two years, 2020 and 2021, have shown how the role of scientists is all the more important. I was really um, impressed and inspired by your two articles, one on um, uh, sides climate uh, treaty, supply-side climate treaty, uh, that might be interesting also to support the Paris Agreement and strengthen it. And another article that you wrote in 2018 on technical change. So how does uh, um, this type of change, both political and technical, help us step out of the climate casino? How, how can science, economic scientists help us do that? Uh, well, I think in this, uh, this uh, science article, we, <clears throat> we try to argue that uh, um, there are different ways to, uh, to reach this long-term goal of keeping global warming below, or at least well below two degrees. And the Paris Agreement is, uh, is uh, one step forward, but we need to step, step uh, even more forward and then uh, we argue that uh, one way of doing that is for for countries that are big producers of fossil fuels to come together and and try to agree upon some restrictions on on fossil fuel extractions. For instance, banning petroleum extraction in the Arctic, for instance, that has been discussed, uh, and also uh, maybe banning exploration in new areas uh, more generally. Uh, so uh, I think this is. Uh, something that's uh, especially relevant for Norway, of course, as a big oil and gas producer. Uh, and now there are also some more movements in um, in the US with the new Biden administration being more restrictive on uh, fossil fuel extraction. So I think there is a potential for, uh, for some countries to come together and take uh, another further step towards uh, uh, reducing the global warming effect. On the other article, I would like to, to, to maybe add some comments as well, and that's uh, that this article points to the inertia of society, that uh, technology, the technological development defines uh, a lot how we do things, and uh, there is an inertia in a te technological system. Development has a tendency to just follow, to use the same technologies and follow the organization and institution around this uh, technological system. And there is uh, potentially, there is a big technological system around oil and gas extraction, coal extraction, producing electricity by coal and uh, gas, then uh, producing all nearly all transport services by oil, etc. And that in order to change that the technological system and come onto a new path, you might need to have a, a much more, um, not a slow, gradual uh, intervention, but a more massive intervention to sort of change the direction of technical change more than we used to think. And one such intervention is, of course, that uh, you start to to actively uh, put brakes on your oil explorations and uh, gas, uh, petroleum explorations, even if they are privately look profitable, even with the current CO2 prices that you want to do more in order to, 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 to turn the direction of technical change. 
Mats Knotainer, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It has been wonderful to host you and better understand the Climate Casino. We are rolling the climatic dice, this is sure, but at least it seems we still can count on sound science, economic science, to start turning the crisis around. So thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you, too.